You're listening to episode 46. This is Grace on Fire. Join your virtual pastor as he offers insight and inspiration into topics we all face. Be empowered. Gain confidence with God's grace so you can face life's most challenging problems. When you integrate faith in every aspect of your life, you can live an extraordinary one for a higher purpose. And now, here's your host, Dr. Jonathan G. Smith. And hello, Grace Nation, and welcome to another episode of Grace on Fire. My name is the Reverend Dr. Jonathan G. Smith, your virtual pastor, and my goal is to help you craft your life for a higher purpose. And today we are going to be talking about one of those really interesting conversations, and that is how do we discipline our kids in the 21st century? You know, you may not have kids, so just kind of flow with me today because this really, this whole show, well, not the whole show, but this show is really going to be about tackling the tough issue of raising kids, of disciplining kids in our modern world because i gotta tell you something i mean today i mean i i look at what kids have to face today and what we as parents have to face today now i'm gen x so you know let's just let me just establish some little cred here i'm a gen x 40 year old all right i'm 40 i turned 40 last year love it by the way having fun with that anyways you know, um, and I think about some of the challenges that I had as a kid, the things that my parents did compared to today. And I think, whoa, what? I mean, think about think about the Internet. You know, my kids, they watch Netflix and Amazon. They do not watch regular television. In fact, I can't think of a time when they watch television. In fact, one of the funniest things happened. We were watching a show uh, back in the day when I had cable and uh, a television commercial came on and uh, my littlest one's like, <laughs> the show's over. I'm like, no, it's a it's a TV commercial. It, it'll come back on. They're like, no, it's over. They literally thought the show was over because of a commercial break. Now, we were watching a Disney show and, you know, honestly, it just occurred to me, they don't know what a TV commercial is even supposed to do. They look at it as just sort of, you know, one of those annoyances or anything. No concept whatsoever. You know, it, it, but that actually brings another problem, doesn't it? Because now we live in an on-demand entertaining world. So back in the day, you know, when Scooby-Doo was over or whatever was over, it was it. You had nothing else. You didn't just go searching for more. What are you doing? And sometimes I find my kids are just like, searching like pushing the button and it's like trying to get their stimulant for the day it drives me crazy they get that they get what i call ipad fog and they're i must have more more i must have more yeah i mean it's it's freaky so we have on on demand entertainment and then uh, you know then we have the opposite problem so we can't just go hey you know get your butt out of this house just go outside no, we can't do that. Why? Because we're so fearful of kids being kidnapped, child molesters, etc., you know, getting hit by cars. I mean, we don't live in a family-friendly culture. In fact, I was uh was talking with uh, a missionary one time and he I think he said it in the most interesting way. He said, "Listen, he said our culture is rated R." Our culture is rated R. And I loved that because we do live in a rated R culture. And so, and we're aware of it as parents, and we realize that we have to do all these things. Why? To try to protect our kids and to try to keep them from being exposed too early to adult issues, themes, et cetera. And frankly, it's hard. I mean, it is hard. I think, 
I think one of the funniest funniest stories I ever heard, and and this is by a listener, and and you know who you are, and so I'm not I'm not gonna say who it is. I'm not gonna put your name, but it was the funniest thing. He said he was what he was playing. Um, he was playing this video game with his son. Meanwhile, he was listening to like Megadeth in the background because he loved you know some of the classic metal like I do. Anyhow. We're not going to go and talk about music today or musical taste. But anyways, so he had this this video game and he was like around shooting people. And then in the background, it was playing all this, you know, mega death. And he goes, you know, I'm just and he goes, I don't think that that was probably the best parental decision that I've ever made. And I was thinking, oh, that was so funny. And because he knew it. But he wasn't thinking about it at the time. And we do things as parents like that all the time. So we're going to be talking uh, in the feature presentation, uh, presentation, the feature presentation. We're doing a whole parent uh, dad life segment. And uh, I have a special song that I want to share with you uh, on that. But so stay tuned to that. That's coming to the end. Also on the show, I'm going to be uh, developing a street theology vocabulary. All right, and I'm super pumped about this. And here's where the and I'll, and I'll talk about the genesis of this a little bit more uh, when we get into it. But I've been working on a vocabulary for Grace Nation. That is, what is street theology? And so I'm trying to create some words here that I think are going to help us in our modern world. Because you know, fundamentally, here's the issue. Okay, theology sometimes answers questions that nobody asks. That's just true. I mean. People don't ask some of the questions that theology provides answers to. And that's one of the, the more difficult things that we have to work through because there's some things that we just simply aren't asking today, and yet we keep pumping out theology that answers questions that nobody's asking. And so what I'm trying to do in my street theology is I'm trying to say, what are the questions, what are the things, you know, the big themes of our society? What are those questions and how can we develop a theology around that? So we're, I'm going to give you just some a basic outline today. And then what I'm planning on doing as I develop more and more of the street theology is kind of breaking all those things down. So I'm super excited about that. Now, before I go any further, I got to just tell you and bring you up, some, up to speed on some cool things that are happening in my life. First of all, I just want to tell you about my wife. Now, my wife, Ivy, back in January had major neck surgery, right? And um, she got out of it and then she had some like really severe pain. Now, I just have to tell you this story, okay? Just for a moment. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to razz on doctors for just a moment because, you know, sometimes doctors, if you've ever been in, and now I was a pharmaceutical rep for eight years and I called on over, I made over 10,000 calls on physicians. So I think I can speak on this just a little bit. So sometimes doctors, what happens is, is they get into these rhythms and they, they, they don't slow down to listen and then they say stupid things and then you're like, why did he say that? I, I don't know. I just, he didn't really just, you know, I just don't like him. And the fact of the matter is, it's not that he doesn't have the right technical knowledge. He's just sort of being a doofus on how he communicates. And so the surgeon, brilliant guy, you can just tell he's brilliant. Um, and he's, he's probably a little bit arrogant. And um, anyways, we go back and he's like, I don't care about pain. That's what he actually said. I don't care about pain. I'm like, uh, you don't care about pain? My wife's in pain. 
And then we sort of had a, a little tussle there. Well, anyways, we went out, got a second opinion after the surgery was done. And the surgery was fine, by the way, but there was a little bit of complications. Got through that. Now Ivy is doing fantastic. And here's how I can tell you and why I can tell you this. I asked her, I said, okay, Ivy, listen, it, you know, think about your pain before you had surgery and think about now. And what is the difference? And you know what she said? She said, I feel like I'm about 80% improved. I'm like, whoa, 80%? Listen, if you can get an 80% response out of surgery, I think that's pretty amazing. And so I'm just confident that she is going to make a full recovery. So for those of you who have been praying for her, thank you so very much. I cannot tell you how awesome that really is. Is. There are some other cool things happening in life uh, that I will be rolling out for you and telling you about in a couple of weeks. One more thing, uh, excuse me, <clears throat> before we get into the show today, one more thing. I have invited Dr. Brian Russell to come back on the show, and we're gonna actually going to start doing some things regularly, and so you can look forward to that in some coming episodes, because what we're going to be doing is working on some more Christian personal development. I mean, what does it mean to develop yourself as a Christian? Not just, you know, going and stealing stuff from other people, but this sort of this holistic idea of really improving yourself as a Christian, but not just you know, what you believe, but how those beliefs impact the rest of our life. And so anyways, lots of cool things developing here on Grace Nation. The final thing I want to share with you is that I'm in the process of building a new website where Grace Nation and Grace on Fire are going to exist. So I can't not wait to tell you about these things. I'm so excited about the future of Grace on Fire and just the many, many cool things that are happening. Thank you so much for listening. And now let's get into some street theology. Connecting deep truth for everyday life. This is Theology on the Street. All right, bringing to you some ideas here from the street street theology you know that's you know one of the reasons why i came up with the term street theology was because frankly theology is about the application of scripture to life that is my definition of theology and the problem is is that sometimes we talk about theology and it has no application whatsoever to our daily life and then we're just sort of well that's really nice to know thank you so much for sharing for that with me and then it's gone it's you know forever gone and you know there's a lot of different reasons for that the church has been through a lot of big fights over the last the last 2000 years and um, so what happens is is that um, we come up with a list that is theologians and in, in, in clergy we come up with a list of things that these things are what you really ought to believe brother and and they're great and they're not wrong so it's not wrong to to talk about those things for example the sovereignty of god or uh the doctrine of original sin or um you know substitutionary atonement you're like uh those are really big words yeah i understand and that's the problem see we use language in theology that is so far removed from the way that we speak every day. And then, you know, if you're an astute student, you start picking up this language and then boom, you're, you're talking and people don't have a clue what you're talking about. And as a pastor, I've learned this uh, particularly 
in in the way that people respond to me. And so what they'll say is they say, you know, you use big words. And I'm like, uh, you're 45 years old, you have a college degree, and you're telling me that I use big words? And it's not that I use big words. I think what it is is that I have a different vocabulary, all right? In every theology, excuse me, every science has a vocabulary. Law has a vocabulary. Accounting has a vocabulary. Um you know, go on and on and on. Biology has a vocabulary. Um, and, and so those vocabularies, the, these words that we use, these are the words that we communicate in within these existing, you know, uh, disciplines or whatever. I mean, even our own families, we have cate- we have our own vocabularies, right? And so, you know, we have to kind of think about that because when we're doing street theology, that is when we're trying to get out and, and spread the good news of Jesus, when we're trying to apply God's word to our lives, sometimes we use words and we're like, we're throwing these words out and we don't even know what they mean. And so I've been in the process of trying to create a vocabulary that really sort of expands you know, expands our understanding of how Jesus relates to us in the 21st century. And I'm just telling you, this is not easy to do. And it's something that I've been throwing around, but I've realized that, you know, through my research, particularly within uh, uh, sexual identity research and others, that there are some things that we can use to kind of help us. So I'm going to go through a list today and expand just very briefly on all of these And then what I'm going to do over the next several weeks is unpack each one of these. Now, some of these I've already unpacked, like, for example, realignment. I had Dr. Brian on the show, um, I think it was two episodes ago, and um, he, you know, he sat down because it's really his idea on what realignment is, right? And that's a great word, realignment, because I think we understand that word in our context of the world today. But there are other words here that I haven't spoken on and things that I've begun to develop in my writings. And I thought, you know, it would just be cool to do an episode, just kind of, here is the vocabulary. So what what I'm going to do today is I'm going to give you this list, and it's like nine or ten here, and uh, I think there's nine, of these nine words in corresponding Bible verses. And by the way, you can go into the show notes if you want to look at these. I'll have all of that in the show notes of episode 46. That's jonathangsmith.com forward slash GOF46. And anyways, we'll have it on there, and you can look at those as you go through it. All right, so let's get into this. And what this does is you'll notice that this is grouped really in terms of, of, of um you know, before and after faith, okay? So just flow with me here because I'm just making this up as I go. (laughs) That's why I love podcasting because we can do this because you and I can just have a conversation. So if this resonates with you, do let me know. Okay, here we go. So number one, resistance. Now, what is resistance? Well, Stephen Pressfield in his book, The War of Art, he identifies something that every creative person faces, all right? And you know what that that creative uh, thing is? This is what it is. It is the issue of having to face a blank page and starting to work. Now, that may sound a little strange. That may sound like, what? What does that have to do with anything? Well, what Pressfield does is he says, you know, every time he tries to do something new, creative, industrious, whatever, he, he experiences this negative force that prevents him from doing it. All right? This negative force. Well, as I thought about that and I listened to what his explanation of that was, I said, you know, this sounds exactly like the doctrine of original sin. 
where Paul talks about this in Adam all died. It's this negative force. We call that sin. But what is sin? You know, that's always something that's been debated. Some people say sin is a is a violation of God's law. I don't believe that. I think it's deeper than that. I think then we, we, we narrow that definition of sin just to a violation of God's law that we are actually missing out on a couple of other key phrases. For example, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 says this way, you were dead in the trespasses and sin in which you once walked. Dead. Death. All right? And that's what the idea of resistance is, is that every time you try to do something creatively, it always feels like there's something working against us, right? Paul talks about this in Romans 7. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing, right? So you want to go lose weight and suddenly Krispy Kreme just boom is right there for you. So that's my idea of resistance, okay? We all face, no matter what we do, resistance. And we have to work hard against resistance. Here's the second one. Uh, The closet, all right? Now, in gay theology, uh, of which I studied in my doctoral work. Now, this probably sounds stranger, like, Jonathan, I thought you were an evangelical Anglican priest. Well, this is true. I am. But I had to read gay theology in order to understand what, what um, you know, liberal theologians were talking about. And they just had this great, great idea of the closet. Now, what is the closet? The closet, obviously, is when a person, an LGBT plus person, has not come out publicly to to describe their alternative sexual identity compared to the norm, right? And so what do they do? Well, they're in a closet. And so my definition of a closet is that it's a place of fear, shame, and isolation. And it's like this. If people found out who you really are, would they accept you? Now, I deal with this, I see this in so many different ways. The fact of the matter is, is that we all have closets in our lives that we're afraid. There's pieces of our lives that we are deathly afraid to share with somebody else. Listen to Psalm 142, verse 4 through 7. I love this. It says this, look to my right and see, there is no one looking out for me. There is no escape for me. No one cares for my soul. Bring me out of my prison that I may give thanks to your name. Think about the prisons in your life. Think about all of those things that you know. That I mean, I'm telling you, if somebody found out that you had this, that you would, that you would be exposed. And it's the idea of exposure. And the fact of the matter is, is that uh, there's all kinds of closets that we live in. But there is an antidote to the closet right and it's and you're going to say the antidote to the closet is confession not necessarily so not necessarily so all right because what happens is is that sometimes people may come out of the closet right and uh they'll just say well this is who i am and then they feel the rejection so what do they do well this is my theory what they do is then they go find a ghetto all right now i wrote <laughs> I wrote this uh, uh, blog post, Escaping the Fundamentalist Ghetto, and man, did I get reamed over it because of my term of the use ghetto. And the fact that, I, you know, I'm just, I'm sticking by my guns here on this one, mainly because I think the term works. But where did I get this term? Well, it's actually a sociological term. And um, technically speaking, you know, in the past, it's been associated with ethnic groups 
you know, inhabiting a particularly concentrated or geographic area, all right? In Nazi Germany, uh, Jews were forced to live in concentrated areas, and uh, that's where the term ghetto really began to develop. But the truth of the matter is, is that there are all kinds of ghettos that we live in. Your neighborhood bar can be a ghetto, right? So you're in the closet, you have an alcohol problem, you don't want anybody to know that you have an alcohol problem, so what do you do? Well, you go hang out with a couple of people you know, that are gonna be fellow alcoholics, they're gonna drink with you, and so long as they maintain, you know, your, uh, your, uh, what do you wanna call it, autonomy, or, you know, they maintain your protection, you're okay, but as soon as you, they expose you, boom, you're, you're out. And that's a really important concept, because that's what we do in so many different circles. We form ghettos. We, there are safe little communities. Sometimes we call them communities, but they're really not communities in the sense that they're healthy communities. They more or less for like form ghettos, and they, and they actually imprison us. And so I love this, because listen to Galatians 2, 1, uh, Galatians 2, 11 through 14, all right? Because this is what happened in Galatians. Peter is out preaching and then all of a sudden the Jews start putting pressure on Peter and said that Gentiles needed to be uh, uh, circumcised. And then all of a sudden Peter looks at the Gentiles who are believing in Jesus, by the way, but because they're not circumcised, he actually withdraws from them. All right. So listen to what Galatians 2, 11 through 14. So this is Paul writing. He says, but when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. I love, I love Paul. He just gets right in your grill, doesn't he? Anyways, he says, for, he said, for before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Do you see that difference right there? All right, so it's a ghetto. So there's this thing that develops and he withdraws and he actually in some ways rejects the Gentiles and Paul calls them on the carpet. Another good example of this is Samaritans. When you look at John 5 and in the story of the Samaritan woman at the woman at the well, all right, those Samaritans felt rejected by the Jews, and so they also they withdrew into their own corners, okay? So ghettos are a technical term, then we have to be very careful about this term because I'm using it in a negative sense, all right? I'm using it in a negative sense to describe a community that is not healthy for you, all right? So what happens? All right. What happens then is that Jesus comes in and he liberates us. So that actually brings me to my fourth term. And my fourth term here is liberation in Luke 4, 18 through 19. So what is what is liberation? Well, think about that wonderful, wonderful verse in Luke 4, 18 through 19. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. All right. Liberation. You know, in Galatians 5.1, for Christ has, or for freedom, Christ has set us free. He liberates us. What does he liberate us from? He liberates us from the closet. He liberates us from the ghettos of our lives. All right. I think that that's a really powerful, powerful term that evangelicals have lost. And, you know, liberal, um, there is a whole, whole stream of liberation theology out there. But I'm not talking about that kind of liberation theology. I want to take that term liberation 
and I want to uh, reappropriate. That's that's a big word. What does reappropriate mean? It means when you take something that was used one way and you use it for something else. And that's what I'm doing here with liberation. All right. I love liberation. It's Christ's declaration of freedom, freedom from condemnation. All right. And that's the problem with the closet and with the ghetto. All right, here we are. Let me just kind of walk through this for you. So we have resistance, the closet, ghetto, and now liberation. All right, so resistance is the thing that all of us face. It's this negative force that uh, creates all kinds of problems in our lives. The negative, when we, when we actually uh, fall into resistance or we succumb to resistance, we fall into a closet very often. People find out what we do. We're we're afraid. So the closet is fear, shame, and isolation. Sometimes to pacify ourselves, we'll find people like us who are in the similar closets, and then we'll get into a ghetto with them, and then we'll stay with them. But what does God do? Well, Christ comes in and he just blows ghettos up. And that's what I love about it because he just goes in. Now think about this for a moment. In Luke 4, 18 through 19, when he's declaring liberty, he is actually in a Jewish ghetto in Nazareth called a synagogue. All right. So he goes into the ghetto and he announces liberation, which is awesome. <laughs> I mean, that's awesome. And they're all looking. And if you go back and read later in, in Luke 4, and we'll get into that a little bit later. In, in, uh, in a few episodes, you know, he goes in to and they look at him like he's lost his mind, absolutely lost his mind. And so I think that that idea of liberation, that God's declaring us righteous, so critical, so important that God's liberation comes in and he frees us. What? From fear, shame and isolation. That's what liberty does. It frees us and liberates us from fear, shame and isolation. All right. So the third, or excuse me, the fifth category is realignment. Now, you can go back to episode 44 and listen to Dr. Russell talk about realignment. I'm not going to get too much into that. But the idea here is repentance, okay? So in repentance and realignment, we are constantly realigning our lives to Jesus. Matthew 4, 17, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In Matthew 4, 17, that word repent is better translated as realign, as an ongoing process, all right? So not only does God, or excuse me, not only does Jesus declare his liberty, his liberation for us, but then he calls us to align or realign with him in an ongoing process, all right? So then we move on to the next one, and that is relationship. Now, I... I got to tell you, of all the things in evangelicalism that I have struggled with over the years, is this 20th century, maybe 19th century, arguably, but this 19th, 20th century, you know, I, idea and presentation of the gospel that is, is that we're inviting you into a relationship with Jesus Christ. There's a part of me that says, listen, every single person on the planet is in relationship with God. The question is, is it negative or positive? Is it in rebellion against God or is it in um, humility and in alignment with God? Do you see? 
And the reason why I can say that is because when we say we're inviting a person into a relationship with Jesus Christ, it's almost like an option of saying that we're not doing it. And this is why I think that there's been a part of me that has rejected using the term relationship and saying, well, can I invite you into a relationship with Jesus Christ? Well, listen, you know, I cannot remember the movie that I saw, but it was a horrible movie one time. And... It, it really it really just brought to bear the emptiness of relationship when you don't have all of these other things. And so when I talk about a relationship here, I'm using it in a very technical way as I'm talking about it as a walk with God as his adopted children, all right? You see this idea of adoption very clearly in Ephesians 1 where we are called adopted as sons and daughters of God. All right. So it is a familiar relationship where God is not just the sovereign God of the universe, but because of uh, because of our commitment to Christ, our response to his lordship, our response to his rule and reign, we actually can say that we are in relationship with him. All right. So that is the big idea there. All right, moving quickly on. Now that we move into a relationship, we're adopted into as a family of God, then we are called into a life of holiness. Now, holiness just simply means separated, okay? It means to, uh, to you know, to stand apart. Sometimes with my Wesleyan friends, and, and I do have lots of good Wesleyan friends, and I love them to death. I mean, let me, just, let me just throw out there, Wesley, I love you. And sometimes we use the word holiness in different ways. When I listen to Wesleyans talk, what they're talking about is character, right it's how you live it's it's how you you work and and the truth of the matter is is that again if you're a bonehead and you know you're not living a life of character that actually reflects that you're following Jesus and nobody would know that you're a Christian except for the fact that they think you go to church on Sundays then you've got a major problem here all right and you probably need to go back and read 1 Peter 1, 13 through 16. So what is holiness? Well, holiness is an ongoing relationship with Jesus Christ that yields in the development of good character in our lives, all right? 1 Peter 1, 13 through 16 says this, therefore, when you have prepared your minds for action, by, listen to this, by being self-controlled, put your hope completely in the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? When Christ comes back, all right, and to judge the world at the end of the world, guess what? Because you put your faith in Christ and you've aligned with him, you've declared him as your Lord, you will escape that judgment. That's what grace is. Verse 14, therefore, as obedient children, why? Because we've now been adopted into this relationship with God as our father. He says this, do not be conformed to the former desires you used to conform to in your ignorance. <laughs> All right? Don't go back to the closet is what he's saying. Don't go back to the ghetto. But, verse 15, but as the one who called you is holy, all right, that is God the Father, you yourselves be holy in all your conduct. For it is written, you will be holy because I am holy. You will be set apart because I am set apart. And that is one of the more uh, Im Im important concepts that I think that we can lose. And, you know, so here it is, holiness. And then what? Justice. 
All right. And we're moving quickly. We've got one more. So hang in there with me. I know we're already 30 minutes into the show today. But listen, justice. Now, I think that this is something that, again, we have to take a word and we need to reappropriate because sometimes we talk about social justice and uh, we get really upset, if, particularly if you're on the conservative side of things. But hey, if you're a liberal, you need to listen to this too. Because listen, it doesn't matter if you're, you know, really a social justice advocate and you're trying to correct wrongs of this world or, you know, you, you, you're suspicious of social justice and you feel like that many of the things are misguided. Sure, I would say that all of that is true, but there is an idea of biblical justice, you know, and biblical justice is important. Listen to Micah 6.8. He has told you, oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Jeremiah 29, 7. And seek the prosperity of the city where I have deported you and pray on behalf of it to Yahweh for in its prosperity you will have prosperity. In other words, what we are supposed to do is to seek the peace of the city. Seek the justice in the city. We're supposed to be socially active. We're supposed to go in and bring God's kingdom, that is be salt and light into the world, all right? So that's the idea of justice here. And this is an important concept because there's all kinds of injustice that happens, right? And as Christians, we should be active and speak out against it. I think one of the most important, important lessons of Anglican history particularly is going all the way back to the Clapton sect back in the 18th century. And if you don't know who these people are, it's William Wilberforce and several others. And William Wilberforce especially, he thought about becoming a clergyman, but actually his uh, mentor, John Newton, actually talked him out of it and said, you could do greater good by being a parliamentarian. So he was in parliament, he was in the British parliament. And William Wilberforce, because of his evangelical Christian commitment, he led great reforms in England, particularly overthrowing the slave trade. It was because of his work that he was able to to successfully abolish the slave trade in England almost 100 years before North America. I mean, fascinating, fascinating example there. Okay, final one is mission. And mission, obviously, is what we're doing here. Sometimes I think that with mission, we think that uh, we get these things confused with justice. But mission is simply making disciples of others. That is introducing them to Jesus Christ. But look at all the other things here that I've talked about today. All right? There's a lot of work that has to be done before you can get to mission. Sometimes I think what happens is, is that people start with mission and they forget about all of these other things. But, you know... We all experience resistance. We still have closets and ghettos that we haven't really experienced Christ's full liberation from. Um, We are in the constant process of realigning our lives to the rule and reign of Jesus Christ. We're still trying to understand what it means to be in relationship with God the Father. We're in the process of improving our character. We're working actively to bring biblical justice to the world. Now we get to that all-important point of inviting people into this. Do you see here? This is a complex thing, is it not? But have I have I done anything that misses anything in terms of the message of Christianity? You see, we've got to develop street theology. We've got to get smart about how to speak street 
in the world today. Otherwise, people are simply not going to understand what we're saying. And now it's time for our feature presentation. And on our feature presentation today, I am going to be switching gears here from street theology, talking about dad life. And to try to introduce uh, dad life segment to you, normally, if you follow my show, here's the deal. I sometimes will run this particular segment. Yeah, I love this one. All right, but this one is way too happy for what we're going to be dealing with today. So we've got to switch gears. Here we go. It's my life. It's whatever. 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 And all the things they say, I'm just going to do everything my way because I know it's my life. It's whatever. It's my life. It's whatever. Can't complain, life has been decent All my electronics are somewhat recent Not a lot of pocket change, but I had what I needed Couldn't go outside, so I was always in reading Parents both work full time so we could keep eating Me and bro were bad, so we got a few beatings It was in my best interest to be disciplined Cause these days you get paid based on speaking skills and listening People judge you based on what they don't know Think they're better than you cause they rich and you got no dough Well, well, they call it class warfare More like the underprivileged against the ones who don't care if you want to tip top, you should want to share Some doing double overtime while you sit in the chair Being a stingy old man that ain't know about to sprint to the top Yeah, it's my life, whatever <laughs> I listened to that song and I was really looking for something today That I thought would just truly embrace dad life segment But really it's not just about a dad life segment Although I'm going to be speaking to dads primarily today And here's why, okay, listen You know, we are in a tough situation And, um we, we really, we dads, we need to step up more, more so now than ever. And there, this is why we got to do it. All right. Our kids are depending on us for the next generation. All right. The next generation is going to be dependent on dads to be certain that we are doing things. I think the, the, that what's happened in our culture, that the pressure of disciplining our kids is now more on parents than ever before. Whereas in the past, that there, because there was a uniform culture, there was a uniform society, there was an agreement upon what kind of values, morals, principles to live by, that if your child misbehaved in that culture, guess what? There was always somebody around them who says, boy, I'm going to be telling you, your daddy, what you just did, boy, right? There was always somebody like that around to do that. Today, forget it. It's not going to work. Today, kids are crazy. I see it all the time. And I'm, I'm just, I'm looking at these kids. I'm like, wow, they're animals. And the truth is, look at the news, look at the crime rates, look at what's happening because we have lost our moral fabric, our moral compass in this country. Guess what? All of the crime rates are going up. You've got lots of problems with all kinds of atrocities taking place. And whose responsibility ultimately is it? It's us. It's dads. It's parents. And guess what? We got to do our work today. So what I want to do today is kind of talk to you a little bit about a challenge that I've had in my family. And, um, you know, I came from a high disciplinarian family. I did. 
Um, my 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 papa, he didn't take any crap. That's right, C R A P. That's the four letter word because we're speaking street here. He didn't take any crap from me, and I'm glad for it. I mean, let me just say something right now. I am so glad for what my father taught me and the roles of discipline. Was he perfect? No. Did I rebel hard? Yes. Am I thankful for those lessons that he taught me when I was a kid? Absolutely. But it's a different culture today. And so what's happened here and some of the challenges that I've had being a dad is the following. All right. Lately, I have a child. I don't want to say who it is, but I have a child that all of a sudden I started getting phone calls from the administrator and the teacher pretty regularly. I mean, early on into this edge, this school year, and it got to the point where I was, I, I just got to the point in January where I was just utterly just frustrated. I was frustrated because of the situation. I wasn't frustrated with the school. I love the school that my kids go to. They go to the Geneva School in Orlando. I think it's the best school in the city. I really do. I love the Geneva School. But what I noticed was is that there was a dynamic taking place in the classroom with my child and my child was just acting up. And so about every week, every two weeks, I started getting phone calls, started getting emails. You know, your child was doing this. Your child was doing this. And so I, I really began to push back a little bit. And I was like, what's going on here? Why is it that there's a failure to be able to adequately discipline my child? Well, as I really started getting into it, I just kind of drilled in. And this is what I what I discovered. Today, more than ever, even Christian schools cannot enforce discipline the way that I had it 30 years ago, all right? 35 years ago, actually, 34, 35, 36 years ago. When I was in second grade, I got a, I got a spanking in second grade from my teacher. I was so traumatized that, by the way, because, you know, I was not only as I was socially embarrassed, but I was just also, it just hurt. I mean, Mrs. Thompson, I mean, she was probably about five feet by five feet. She was a big old woman and man, she has some power and she had a ping pong paddle and I, and she spanked my butt. Oh my gosh, it hurts so bad. I'll never forget it. I mean, I got lots of spankings when I was a kid from my parents, but of all the ones that stand out to me, that one stands out to me more than any other. And the truth of the matter is, forget it. That's not going to happen today. All right, that teacher would probably get um, brought up by child social services, lose her job, get arrested, whatever. I mean, just all kinds of things. And so that's what I mean in terms of corporal punishment and other ways. Teachers and administrators, their hands are tied. They can't touch your kids. All right. And there's wacko parents out there who, oh, I can't believe that you did that. <laughs> and you're just like, whatever, whatever, whatever. It's my life, whatever. Right. And so. You just have to think about the context that we're in, all right? So what I want to do in the remaining time that we have today is just unpack scripture and unpack some really important things, all right? Because this is the key thing to remember, all right? Are you ready? Our children experience resistance too. Our children experience sin too. Our children's natures are fundamentally broken, just like ours. And our job as parents is to teach our kids how to deal effectively with resistance. All right. So here's the vocabulary kicking in. Because why? You tell a kid, get up. They don't get up. Get up. Don't get up. 
sweetie, it's time to get up. And what happens? Three minutes later, sweetie, it's time to get up. Four minutes later, sweetie, get up. Five minutes later, get your ass out of bed. Oh, I'm sorry. Did I offend you? But isn't that true? Don't get all piety and religious on me. Okay? Because it's truth. Because we say things to our kids that nobody else hears. So, <laughs> so this is the thing that's important to remember here. Is our children are broken. Our situations are broken. Our homes are broken. So where do dads come in? Now listen, dads, you need to be a disciplinarian. And now listen to this. This comes from Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 7. Hear Israel, Yahweh our God. Yahweh is unique. And you shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. And you shall recite them to your children. And you shall talk about them at the time of your living in your house and at the time of your going on the road and the time of your lying down and the time of your rising up. All right. Now, this is really important to understand here because in in Deuteronomy, especially now, we don't recognize this translation. I was using the Lexham English. I want I want you to hear it again. This is coming from the English Standard Version, which stands for the essentially safe version. Here it is. Verse four. The Lord our God, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently. Now, who is he speaking to? Who is he speaking to? Well, it actually tells us in verse 3. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers. All right? I believe that yes, it's talking to moms here, but principally it's talking about fathers. In the Bible, the father was responsible for discipline, all right? And that's why dads, you gotta show up. Otherwise, you're gonna hear this. It's my life, it's whatever. It's my life, it's whatever. It's my life. And we don't want to hear that, do we? No, of course not. That's not what we're looking for. So, got a couple of things that I want to talk to you a little bit about. All right. And this really talks to do, or talks to do, has to do with behavior modification. All right. So, getting back to the situation with my child, one of the things that I discovered with my child was this. Whenever my child would go to the administrator, the principal, this is what happened. There was this talk. Now, so-and-so, you know that you shouldn't do this and that you really need to be careful and this is not how proper how we respond and I know that you didn't do this. Now, I'm, I'm picking a little bit. So, if you go to that school and you're an administrator, just, this is really just me stereotyping a little bit, okay? But then this happened. I would get a little note that said, okay, your child is resting on my couch bingo so i went back in and talked to my child all right i said child you know do you like it when the principal is talking to you no okay and so but do you like sleeping on the couch yes and i got it right there you see there was a subtle thing happening my child was misbehaving to get out of the activity whatever activity that that the child didn't want to and i'm trying to be really careful because i want to protect my child here but it's so important trying to get out of the activity would endure the the you know the talk by the administrator but ended up resting on the couch now what happened when that child that child got out 
of having to do whatever they were supposed to do. All right. Our kids are, are just as susceptible to these things as we are. They will endure anything so long as they don't have to do the other thing. Right? Isn't that true? We will endure all kinds. We will procrastinate. We will do anything uh, that it takes so long as we don't have to do what we're trying to get out of. And that's just true. And so that's where behavior modification comes in and steps in and where I think it's really critical to understand how we can modify that behavior. Because basically what I had to do was I had to break this pattern that had become entrenched at the school. And so this is what I said. I said, child, if I get another email or phone call, you will receive a spanking. You will receive a spanking. All right. Sure enough, it happened. I spanked my child. Now, I just want to give a little bit a little bit of a disclaimer. I'm in the state of Florida. I actually went and looked up under the Florida statutes, that is the law in the state of Florida, whether or not it was legal for parents to spank their kids. And I found that it is. So if you live in a state, and I'm only speaking in the state of Florida, but if you live in a state other than the state of Florida, you need to figure out whether it's lawful or not. All right. You need to protect yourself legally. Now, one of the things that's important here is that in the state of Florida, it says that you have to use appropriate spankings in appropriate areas that does not result in major bruising or looks to be excessive. All right i.e. abuse because let's just face it sometimes when you're upset and your your adrenaline's going because your kids have misbehaved you say i'm gonna go spank you and you just start going at it right you will not do this and meanwhile it's in the middle of the spankings right <laughs> sort of the medea uh, uh effect uh if you watch that movie medea um you know you got to think about that And so I suggest that you take a few moments to educate yourself on whatever law or statutes that you're being governed by, by the state, by the community. All right. That's critical. In the state of Florida, it is legal and lawful to spank a child. That is to use corporal punishment. But listen, spanking is not the only thing. All right. So how do we modify behavior? Well, we can modify behavior in a couple of ways. First of all, in my child's uh, way and in, in what my child did, was I had to break this pattern up. I said, I got to figure out a way to break this pattern because this pattern is going to continue because my child has figured out that the suffering that it takes uh, to, to go through in terms of the discipline uh, is less than having to do the actual work, Right. In other words, I would rather just go through the lecture by the principal to get to the nap, deal with my parents' wrath a little bit, than having to learn how to play the violin. I mean, it's crazy, but that's what was happening. So I said, if this happens again, this will happen. Now, I looked up on behavior modification because one of the areas of my studies has been education, and particularly in psychology. So I have an undergrad in psychology. And um, I'm very familiar with behavioral psychology because the psychology program that I was in actually had a very strong behavioral science background. So this is what I discovered. This is an important principle. This is by B.F. Skinner, who was a behavior psychologist. And this is what he said in 1986. We We reward people, but reinforce behavior. All right? We reward people, 
but reinforce behavior. Very important. Notice the distinctions here, reward and reinforcement. All right. So let's talk about young children for just a moment. How can we modify their behavior? And the truth of the matter is, is that we need to understand a key, key thing between giving and taking pleasant and unpleasant. All right. So let me just give you what this means. All right. And I'm going to put this up on the show notes. So take a look at the show notes because I think it'll be really, really helpful for you. First of all, giving. What are things that you can give? Well, in class, you can give extra credit, right? That's called positive reinforcement. You can give something and reinforce a behavior. So on Monday, I knew that what was going to happen was that uh, my kids were tired because of the time change, which is the dumbest thing in the world, by the way. But I knew my kids uh, were going to be tired for time change. And if anything, they were going to be susceptible on Monday for poor behavior. So I called the teacher that afternoon and I said, I want to know if my child's behavior was good or bad, because if it's good, I'm going to do something nice for them. Turns out had a great day. So I went over to a cupcake place because they love cupcakes, bought these expensive cupcakes, came home and said, I am so proud of you because you had a great day, even though you were really tired. All right. That's positive reinforcement. I had to find a way for positive reinforcement. All right. Giving. But here's the unpleasant. All right. Because what could have happened was that teacher could have said, you know what? I wasn't going to tell you this, but since you called, this is what happened. All right. Now I'm going to give something because the teacher's now done something. And that is that I received feedback. I told my child, if I hear something happen at school, you are going to be punished, and that is a spanking. That's three swats on the behind, right? Three swats. That's considered punishment, all right? The technical term is presentation punishment, but the idea here is that you're giving it and it's unpleasant, or it's positive. You're giving it and it's pleasant, okay? It's the idea of giving. A lot of times what we do is we actually take things, don't we? We don't think about giving as much as we take. And so, for example, you know, child, if you misbehave, I'm going to take away this. And the problem with that is what? You're taking something away and it's not as it's not as clear, is it? Because when you give something let me tell you, you you're you either give something sweet or give something negative, but you're giving it. When you take something away, sometimes the effect is not as strong. All right, it's not as painful. Why? Because they can go find something else to satisfy them. All right. So taking something away that's pleasant, i.e., no internet, no Netflix, none of these things. You know, you're taking away something that is pleasant. Okay, but there's another way that you can actually reward them by taking something from them. So negative reinforcement is no homework, right? So the teachers can say, you know, hey, you all really um, behaved well today. I'm just going to say no homework for the day. And they're like, yay, no homework, right? And all the parents, you know, uh, breathe a sigh of relief. And that's true. That's negative reinforcement. So what do we do? We're reinforcing behavior. And I think that that's one of the critical things here. You can either give something to reinforce it 
or take away something that reinforces it. But when it comes to punishment, you can either take away that something that they like or you can actually use corporal punishment on them. All right. You have these four possibilities. And I think that it's important because what happens is, is I think sometimes we become one dimensional in our punishment. We become one dimensional in our thinking. We're either constantly spanking, constantly spanking, constantly spanking, constantly spanking. Or, you know, we're putting soap in our mouth. Um, I got soap in my mouth all the time. Uh, it didn't help, but I still do it. Um, you know, it, it's this idea of just this one dimensional. Rarely did I get, you know, treats for doing something well. Um, or rarely did something be removed because I behaved well. You see, some we have these different options. And so the problem is, is that when we're one dimensional in our uh, punishment, in our behavior modification, then the child starts getting accustomed to it. And it becomes less effective. Well, then I just need to endure that. And I think that's what was actually happening, you know, at the school, because what was was ended up happening was, you know, they were trying to remove uh, something that was unpleasant, you know, um, or excuse me, let me let me totally re change what I just said. OK, you know, they were trying to punish them, but because they couldn't really do something corporally, you know, then they were just lecturing. And the problem is when you do lectures, that's all a different part of the brain whatsoever. All right. And, you know, kids, they're smart. They can tune us out if they can get to, you know, resting on the nice couch in order to avoid the pain of having to do whatever they're told to do. And so these are just some things, some tools here that I think, you know, are helpful. Why can you give? either, you know, extra credit, you know, giving a cupcake, giving some other kind of reward or punishment, you know, spanking or some other kind of uh, corporal punishment. Think about what you can give versus what can you take? That is removing something that's unpleasant when they do something right or, you know, taking something away. If we just keep taking things away all the time, all the time, then guess what? They're just going to find some other way around that. So I think there's just some things here to think through. Uh, I don't have all the answers because I'm still learning. But, you know, modifying behavior is one of the things that we have to watch. Why? Because, listen, we are fun. I, I, I totally believe this. I think that we are fundamentally irrational creatures with occasions of rationality. That's what I really think we are. We are fundamentally irrational creatures with uh, an occasion of rationality. Our children are that way. We as parents are that way. And if we're going to raise kids, if we're going to be good fathers, then we're going to have to find ways to discipline our kids. So dads, I'm calling you. This is what we have to do. These are the things that we want to strive for. And really part of this is pointing ultimately to the judgment of God, isn't it? Isn't it pointing us back to God where God gives us these standards in life and he says, if you do this, this will happen. But if you fail to do this, then this will happen. And the truth of the matter is, is that when we don't learn these lessons as kids, we end up carrying these things into our adult lives. And sometimes those things can absolutely sabotage our lives. And that's what we want to try to avoid, isn't it? Because ultimately, we want to point our kids to genuine faith in God, in Christ, through Christ, because 
all of the human race ultimately is rebellious against God. And so the gospel for our kids is, yes, we want to give them grace. We want to teach them uh, the love of God, but we also want to understand the consequences of their behavior. And that brings us to the end of a very packed hour on Grace on Fire. I pray that God's blessings be upon you. May his light shine upon you. May you feel God's peace in all the things that you do. And the blessings of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be with you now and always. Thank you for listening to Grace on Fire, a Verve Creative production. For show notes, updates, and more, visit jonathangsmith.com slash graceonfire.